You're listening to your Route to Wellbeing podcast. This podcast shares strategies, insights, nuggets, and tools to inspire and support you as you step boldly towards creating the well-being that you desire and deserve. Each week, I share insights and inspiration from different people who have expertise across one or more of the 11 domains of well-being. Each one of the guests that I've chosen to talk to have found the clues through their lives and experiences, through their careers and their knowledge, that I want you to have access to. My big question is how can we all pulse with energy and truly live while we're alive? I believe that these people that I'm talking to have some of the crucial answers. So relax, listen up, and thank you for tuning in. Please remember to leave us a review and also to share this podcast with anyone in your network who you think it may help. Hi, I'm Sue Fullergood from the Energy Incubator and your host on your Route to Wellbeing podcast. I'm so excited this morning to have Nick Haram. Lambus. I just asked him how to say his name and now I've said it completely wrong, but it's really to have you here, Nick. And uh, um, thank you for making time to be with us this morning. I have never met Nick before, and uh, it really is fantastic to talk to him on this podcast because I read his book, which his mother-in-law handed to me as a gift and said, you better read this. I think you'll find it interesting. And normally I have a pile of books. Well, not normally. I did have a pile of books on my bedside table that I was reading all at once. And uh, a book would normally have to wait and uh, it would take several months for me to get to it. But that book I jumped the queue with and uh, I really, really enjoyed it. So I'm excited to um, download some of those ideas out of your head and into the ears of of our listeners. Amazing, thank you. um, Yes, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What would you love the listeners to know about you? Sure, that's a a loaded question. Um, So I used to say to people, first and foremost, that I'm an entrepreneur, but I am no longer an entrepreneur after 20 odd years building businesses for myself. Um, I grew up in Joburg, lived in Cape Town, uh, thoroughly enjoy traveling. Um, I'm a very firm atheist. Um, I like building stuff. Um, I have lots of tattoos. Uh, I got two dogs. Um, I, I'm very entrepreneurial in my life, generally. Um, my heritage is Greek Cypriot, and my parents are both um, self-starters. Neither of them educated beyond matric but both of them very accomplished in their own rights, managed to put me through private schools and university and had a very privileged upbringing and um, have dedicated most of my life to building businesses and solving problems and helping entrepreneurs. And at the moment, I have taken up a position at a South African company called Yoko. Uh, I'm a shareholder in the business and we help facilitate entrepreneurs to make payments easier. Wow. And I think all of us, certainly in South Africa, know uh, the system, Yoko, and thank you for making our lives easier. So um, I I know that now you've just moved to Holland. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your choice to move there and how it's going for you? Sure. So um, my partner and I have made very 
specific life choices, uh, not to have children. Uh, we don't own a home. We don't have any debt. Um, we both are very privileged that we have passports other than our South African passports. So uh, a few years ago, we decided to adventure. Um, and I think there's an important distinction to make here. We weren't running from something. We were running to something. And that's a pretty important distinction that I think most South Africans misunderstand, that if you leave South Africa, you must be running from something. And I don't think we were. Um, we made those plans before COVID. And we were actually supposed to move in August of 2020. And obviously, that didn't happen. So we then moved to the UK in 2021. Um, and that was two years that we spent there. And then uh, I decided to join Yoko. And they have a head office. One of the head offices is in Amsterdam. And so we decided to move closer to the hub so I could be close to the founders and work with them. And we just packed up our stuff and moved. And that is the third country in three years. Wow. Yeah. I love, uh, I've always said life is an adventure. And uh, the purpose of life is to adventure. So I love uh, your free and easy attitude towards uh, just embracing the adventure that life can offer you. And um, can you give us a bit more insight into your career path and um, your own personal journey to where you are now? Sure. Um, it's, it's a long and twisted story, so I'll give you the abridged version, um, but starting very young. Uh, I was incredibly lucky that for whatever reason, when I was about 11, my parents got me an internet-connected computer. Um, and I've done the math on that. At that time in 1995, there were only 30,000 internet-connected computers in South Africa. So I fully understand how privileged I was to have that access. Um, and then the second thing that happened around that time is my brother wasn't interested at all in computers. So I managed to usurp the computer with internet access all on my own to myself in my room. I uh, taught myself to code when I was about 11 or 12, um, got on the internet, um, started building websites just because I could and was fun. Um, hacked my first computer with an online friend that I found when I was about 13. Uh, didn't like the feeling of that, so never did that again. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, for whatever reason, decided that I wanted to be a war correspondent and study journalism. So throughout school, that's kind of what I moved towards. Uh, then went to Rhodes in Grahamstown, which is now called Makanda, and studied journalism, writing, philosophy, politics, um, and some psychology and all the time starting businesses. So when I was 16, I started my first business at school. Um, and then I was bitten by the bug. Uh, as I mentioned, my, my parents are entrepreneurs. So it was kind of always in us to do that. It's not really uh, anything else that I knew how to do. Um, and so then studied journalism, but also then started a band, which was a business and promoted that for three years and almost got a record deal. But our lead singer chose to get a job at Unilever instead of signing the record contract. And that was literally, we were all at someone's house signing the contract. And he was like, yeah, guys, I, I can't sign this. I have to get a job. And he did. And the band ended. And that was another business that didn't work out. Um, and so continued building businesses while I got a job at Vodafone or Vodacom, worked there for a couple of years, but left um, with my boss, who was also my lecturer at Rhodes, so kind of followed each other, and um, went to Cape Town to raise venture capital funding. Um, this was about the time that the brand Silicon Cape was emerging, so we were the first um, non-Cape Town-based startup to relocate to Cape Town to raise funding in that environment. Um, so we did, we raised a few million rand to start a business and two and a half years later, I sold that business to Mixit. 
Um, and then started a consulting firm um, where I helped foreign businesses launch into the African continent, uh, launched a few businesses for NASPAS into Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, and then sold that consulting firm to Imperial Logistics, and then built a retail business, a sock company called Nakari. We um, built that up over seven or eight years to five stores in three provinces, shipping in 20 countries around the world. And then sold that business, luckily just before COVID, because we had leases in malls, which would have been absolutely horrific. And um, then my career kind of took varying paths into Web3 technology and crypto and uh, all sorts of other things. Uh, exited a few of those businesses and then moved to the UK and started coaching entrepreneurs and speaking uh, at businesses about entrepreneurial endeavors. And here we are today in the Netherlands with Yoko. So what I'm hearing from you is that starting new things, quitting this, moving to something else is super easy for you. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because this podcast is all about well-being. And uh, I'm really interested in the things that help people have better well-being. And one of them is, I think, knowing when to quit and knowing when to pivot or change and lots of people are terrified of that and and therefore they carry on doing something long after it's it's stopped serving them or it's stopped being exciting for them so give us some insight how do you know when to quit when to change yeah the, the interesting thing i've got firm opinions about failure i don't know where they really emerged from because this fear of failure that most people have i think is misplaced and uh, does them more harm than good um, and there's a lot of learned experiences around that, a lot of social pressure, and the internet has definitely made that worse because everything you do can be seen by everyone all the time. Uh, if you think back 100 years ago, if you failed, you failed in front of your village or your town or even just your family. Now, if you fail, your website has to be closed down. Your social media has to be closed down. Your friends know about it. They see it on Facebook and Instagram. It's brutal. So fear of failure is ever present. For me, it's just not been there. Um, I live a very open and transparent life. Um, it's kind of the way that I vet people is I'm me. And if you don't like my abrasive nature, if you don't like how honest I am and straightforward, then that's fine. You're just not meant to be for me. Like we just aren't meant to be around each other. And that's kind of carried over into everything that I do. Um, it is very difficult. Uh, I see a psychologist frequently to manage the way that I live because it is difficult. Most people shut up and put up and move on. I just don't. Um, if my mother-in-law has mentioned anything about me, it's probably that, that I have strong opinions. Um, but I think this fear of failure that holds most people back just never was never an affliction that I had. I always dive into everything. I always do my best to excel at everything. Um, but I'm equally self-aware to know what I'm good at and know what I'm not good at and know when it's time to stop. Um, and the parameters of that are very difficult to codify and they're different for everybody. Um, some people have a high propensity to experience pain and suffer through things. I count myself as one of those people. Um, for example, I, I became bold in the period of an 18-month eight, period while I was running a startup. The pressure, the stress, the anxiety gave me a stomach ulcer that put me in hospital, gave me um, uh, kidney stones twice in the space of 18 months. And over that period, my hair went from being in a ponytail to bald in a period of 18 months. So my stress manifests itself very physically. 
Um, at that time, I was in my early 20s, so I didn't put those things together. So I just pushed through. In hindsight, um, those were the things telling me to stop. Those were the things. Um, but in your early 20s, you define success by external validation, not internal validation. So I was building a billion dollar business. So my health didn't matter. My partner didn't matter. My life didn't matter. The business mattered. My um, definition of success was not well-rounded. It was, again, a learned experience by who we as a society put on a pedestal. And that is rich, wealthy white dudes. And now in your moving towards my 40s, um, one year away from that, I think the idea of what failure is is more comfortable because my idea of success is different. And I think uh, the shift is I'm trying not to be successful. I'm rather trying to live a successful life. And that is a subtle nuance, but a really important one because a successful life is a well-rounded one. Um, a failed life is a life where you've tried one thing and you never succeeded that one thing. That is a failure, absolutely. If you try to be a billionaire and you spend all your life trying to be a billionaire and then you never get there, you've thrown away relationships, you've thrown away enjoyment, you've thrown away day-to-day -day living for this pot of gold at the end of a rainbow that doesn't exist. So I've had to refactor and reform the way that I look at failure, the way that I look at success, and then grow from those experiences. Just to carry on a little bit more about the concept of failure, um, in my studies uh, of trying to figure out about resilience and entrepreneurship and how this all works, I came across this really incredible idea in psychology called post-traumatic growth. Um, and it's a really interesting concept. Uh, in all these studies done by psychologists over the last decade, 85% of respondents in these studies claim to be a better version of themselves after experiencing a trauma. That is such a key principle that in today's soft age where everything is easy, and it is, to be clear, the world is safer, we have more food, less hunger, more um, employment, less child mortality than the last 200 years. So the world is better today, but we feel worse. We feel worse. But it's because we're avoiding trauma. It's because we're avoiding difficult things. Post-traumatic growth is the learned lesson that if you experience a trauma, that trauma makes you a better version of yourself. If we live in a world where we're triggered by everything and we avoid everything, we never learn resilience. And this is the point about failure. The thing that I like to say about people about failure is it's not an end point, it's a through point. It's a point through which you must go to become a better version of yourself. And if you spend your life avoiding failure, you're just the same version of yourself that you were ever going to be. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. So there's a lot I want to unpack there quickly, if we can. Can we come back to stress? Okay, so you experienced enormous stress, which which showed itself in your um, body quite dramatically. What do you recommend around stress? What are your thoughts around it? And yeah, give us some ideas. Um, I, I'm a little bit of an obsessive thinker. So when I when I think about something like stress, I first have to consider the first principles around it. So uh, for people who don't really know the idea of first principles, instead of looking at the whole, you look at the things that make up the whole. So you don't look at the stress, you look at the things that make up the stress. So for me, I would have to go, okay, well, why am I feeling stressed? What informs that stress? And how do I get away from that stress? And the first thing was um, I've evolved a worldview that fits my life. The, the world that I want to live in. Um, so I consider myself to be an existential nihilist. I don't think that 
anything really has meaning. I don't believe in an afterlife. I don't believe that you should do anything for anybody other than the things you feel are good that make that person feel okay. Um, that is a difficult thing for most people to wrap their heads around because nihilism implies this listlessness and this lack of motivation to do anything. But it helps me understand that the thing I'm doing right now might be making me stressed and deeply anxious, but fundamentally doesn't matter. It fundamentally doesn't mean anything. And humans obsess over the nuance of every little detail. And I did in my early 20s. Everything mattered. Everything was the most important thing. Fundamentally, that's just not true. There are 8 billion other humans who also feel like their experience is the only one that matters in the world. That is egocentrism. And that is the human condition. We believe that we are the most important things, but it's not true. So I try and remind myself of this. Um, I've also built a list of what I call nickisms. So when I learn a lesson and it adds to my stress, I try and unpack it and then make it a codified thing that I do in my life um, so that I can defer to this list. Um, for me, stress builds up when I have to make lots of decisions repeatedly. So I try and remove the repeated decision making by having rules that I live by. For example, uh, do more, but sometimes wait. So I, I do like to do a lot of stuff, but sometimes it's okay to stop and wait. When you are waiting, it's okay. So I've had to codify these things to lower my stress so I don't have to keep remaking decisions and relearning lessons. So that's the first thing. That's very philosophical. The first thing is figure out what your worldview is because you've inherited it from other people, your parents, your religion, the po political alignment that you have, whatever. Stop doing that and just think about what works for you. You don't have to inherit your understanding of happiness from anybody else. That adds to your stress when it's defined by someone else, then you're living up to their expectations. Then on a very practical level, um, I exercise as often as I can. I have a rowing machine just to my right. So my partner is much better than I am with that. But I try and at least exercise four days a week, even if it's for 10 minutes, mainly not for the physicality of it, but because it helps my brain process, fires off the endorphins and gets me kind of reassessing whether I'm really stressed or just needed to blow off some steam. Um, I've recently re-picked up meditation, um, so I try and meditate at least 20 minutes a day, uh, just using an app called uh, Waking Up, the Sam Harris app, which is incredible for guided meditations if, if anybody's looking for something like that. Um, then I try my best to eat well. Um, my partner's vegan, so we eat incredibly healthy all day, but I have a sugar addiction, so um, I struggle with that immensely. Genuinely, it is, I've, I've quit smoking. I used to smoke 40 a day for eight years. That was easier to stop than sugar. Sugar is just an impossibility in my life, it, but frankly, because it's in everything. In, even in tins of chickpea, there is sugar in chickpea. Wow. Um, so that's, I'm very conscious of. Um, I have dogs, so I walk my dogs frequently. That gets me out of the house. Um, and now living in Amsterdam, walking and cycling is like part of life. So that helps. Um, and honestly, moving a lot definitely helps my stress. I don't like to be bored. Um, and being in a different place feeds that part of me. Um, and then the, the final thing I'd say is having my partner definitely helps my stress. Having someone that really does genuinely understand me and is able to put up with my crap and then give it back to me um, and tell me that I'm being ridiculous. So those things all help. There's there's a whole lot of other stuff, but I'm constantly trying to learn and experiment with what works and what doesn't. Um, one of the things I'd love to tease out, because I think it's it's quite unique, um, uh, is, is your um, attitude about not taking things too seriously. 
our, you know, in South Africa, we have these hardy dolls, we all remember them well, that go, Wah! and every time I hear a hardy doll, I always think it's reminding me to laugh at myself and not take myself too seriously. And I, I really think what you're saying around, um, you know, it, it, knowing that it's, it's, it's not so important, you're just a blip in the galaxy and, and you know, it doesn't really matter that much is, is such a useful thing to remind yourself of. Um, so thank you for teasing that out for us and uh, and saying it. Have you got any ways of reminding yourself that other than Hardy does, which I use? Um, as I mentioned, I think the the primary way is that I codify my worldview. Like it's not some loose thing that I've inherited from anywhere else. I've actually written my. I'm looking at my nickisms now, so that if we need to refer to them, we can. But the very first nickism that I have is there is nothing after this. This mm -hmm. is the thing. So stressing about every little nuance every day is going to make this one thing that you do terrible. And that's not really a life worth living. Um, and I just choose to make decisions that work for me. It sounds selfish, but it's it's not. The happier I am, the happier the people around me can be. And that permeates like a mushroom cloud. So I kind of just try and remind myself, hey, look, it doesn't always work. Let me be clear. There are days when I want to throw things against the wall because nobody's listening to me or because work isn't going well. I still experience distress, but internalizing it and working through it is much easier when I have the worldview that I have. And I hold it really firmly and I remind myself of it frequently and I read about it and uh, it informs the way that I exist. I mean, one of the things I read recently uh, Henry David Thoreau wrote an essay, he's a philosopher, and he wrote an essay 200 years ago, and the opening lines of this essay, um, which really hit home for me, were, I'm walking down the street, and I look around me, and everybody is their head buried in a newspaper, and they're not paying attention to the world around them, when will we stop and enjoy the day? That was 200 years ago, nothing has changed. It doesn't matter what technology we put in front of ourselves, it doesn't matter where we are, the world is the same, humans are the same. The only thing that can change is you. You can't expect the world to change around you. And once you understand that, like it all works. And again, with the nickisms, I think through the kind of life that I'm choosing to live and the things that make me anxious, one of the things that make people anxious is the legacy they're leaving. I don't care about legacy. That doesn't make me anxious. One of my nickisms is you're building a life, not a legacy. I'm building the thing that I'm building now. It's the only thing we know exists. We don't know that anything else exists. So why make this terrible? And that's just the choice that we make. And it's a choice. I, I love how you make your own rules. I hear you call them nickisms, and I love that. Uh, yeah, where did you learn to make your own rules? Because I think so many people are so compelled by the societal rules that they've been programmed with that they don't realize that they have the freedom to choose how they live their lives and, and what works for them. And, and that brings us to the fact that then people fail to make choices about their lives. They live in autopilot, letting their unconscious mind or their fears drive them. So, yeah, choices. How do you, what do you, do you have some rules about that or some pearls of wisdom yeah. about how did I figure out that this is the, the way to live? Um, I'm trying to find the Steve Jobs quote exactly, but Many, many years ago, uh, so being in technology, obviously, Steve Jobs is uh, shining light for most of us, but he, I read something that he said that completely shattered my perspective on how the world operates and, and how you can operate within the world. 
And the quote went something to the effect of rules were just made up by the people who came before you. That's it. They're not rules. There is no real idea. None, none of it is real. It's all made up. Humans made up money. We made up borders. We made up passports. We made up rules. And every innovator who comes along changes the rules in some way or another. And look at the history of the American um, Constitution. There are amendments and addendums. Nobody just puts a rule in place and then it's there forever. The most insane thing is that we have 10 commandments from 2000 years ago that we still apply today. They didn't have internet 2000 years ago. They didn't have enough food 2000 years ago. They didn't have borders or politics or planes or cars or the language we use in the same way we use it today. Those rules were made up by people 2000 years ago. Today, you get to make up your own rules. You just do. It, it sounds absolutely insane, but you really do. And this is kind of the part where it gets sticky for most people and they get quite affronted when I say this, but you can make up your own rules in the same way that you can choose to be happy. You are a victim of your own choices. You don't, you, you're not unhappy because somebody made you unhappy. Um, if you read Stoicism, uh, which I'm a little bit in, interested in, they've got this fantastic concept, uh, the ancient Stoics, or the ancient Greek philosophers and Roman philosophers who are not trying to remove themselves from emotion. It's a common misunderstanding that being stoic means you have no emotion. It's trying to be in control of your emotions. And Stoicism introduces this concept called the dichotomy of control. There really are two ways to live a life. You can choose to allocate your energy to things that you can control or allocate your energy to things you cannot control. And we all can see which way you should allocate your energy. That practice is incredibly difficult. Um, for example, if I am getting retrenched, that is shocking and terrible and sad, but I have no control over that decision. I have control over how I respond to that decision. And that subtle nuance is a very important one. If you can understand in your life the difference between reacting to something and reacting to something you can control, your life can be immeasurably more happy because you choose what you want to respond to. If you're fighting with your partner, you can choose to apologize because you are wrong, or you can choose to dig your heels in and fight for the next week. I choose to be happy and apologize and move on with my life because fundamentally arguing about dishes does not matter. It doesn't matter. So just choose to forget it and move on. I think uh, I love what you say. Choose to be happy. Yeah. Why ever not? You know, happiness is a choice. It's not a, it's not something that happens outside of you. It's, it's a choice. Yeah. yeah. And actually that means that well-being is also a choice. Because when we choose to do things that make us happy and bring us joy, it does help us feel better. And unequivocally, I mean, even if you revert, sticking with the well-being and revert back to my obsession and struggle with sugar, I can say that I'm addicted to it, and I physically am. Like there is studies that show that sugar is physically addicting. But when it gets to me not having sugar for seven days, at that seven-day point, I think to myself, "No, I want cheesecake." I choose cheesecake because I love cheesecake and a life lived without cheesecake is not a life I want to live, even though it makes me unhappy to have sugar. So that is still a choice. It's one that affects me negatively, but it's still a choice. And uh, I think that's uh, so important to not deceive yourself that you actually aren't making a choice. Even if it is an addiction, it's still a choice. Uh, it might be bigger than you, it might be a hard choice, it might be a choice that 
really it requires energy, but either way, it's a choice. And you can say no to yourself, exactly. or you can say yes to yourself. Yeah. I love that. So let's talk a little bit. I love what you said about um, your, your understanding what success meant for you. And you said that you are living a successful life rather than, uh, you know, becoming successful. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's so important for people to define their own definition of success. Uh, can you walk us through that? Yeah. So... I think that came from retroactively looking at uh, in what I would call a, a failed career as an entrepreneur. And many people would look at my career and disagree. Uh, I've written three books, two of them are bestsellers. I've sold three businesses, but none of that peaked at success for me, uh, according to the definitions of what I was looking at. And in the world of tech, if you don't sell your business before you're 30, 400 million dollars, you're not a success. And the older I got, the more I started thinking, but who told me that? Like, where did that come from? How does that inform my life sitting here in this chair right now? Um, because the truth is, nobody cares about me. Nobody thinks about me in the best way possible. Nobody gives a dab about whether I succeed or not. And that experience of failure informed my definition of success. So what I thought would happen when I failed at one of, so uh, in my, the thing I skipped over in my story is between the age of 16 and now I've started 13 different businesses and only had three successful exits. I've had 10 failures in a career of 20 years as an entrepreneur. And the thing that this failures taught me is that if you, it's that famous saying, I think I want to say it's an Einstein saying, but I don't believe it is. I think that's been corrected. If you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will always feel like a failure. <laughs> that's exactly what you're doing when you are trying to work on somebody else's definition of success and not succeeding at that. You have to figure out what your idea of success is. And Initially, for me, it was, I must be a war correspondent. And then I was like, well, no, that's actually not what I want. And then it was, I'm going to be a successful billionaire entrepreneur. And then I thought, well, I'm going to have money, but I'm going to have kidney stones and a stomach ulcer and be bald and fat and unhappy and have no relationships. And then I'm going to die alone, but with a billion rand in my bank. That's not a well-lived life either. So then you start constructing bits and pieces of what you believe that could look like. And ultimately think that there is more than external validation to the concept of success. And we misunderstand that there is actually internal validation that matters most. And seeing a psychologist helped me more than I can tell. If anybody listening has ever wondered if they should see a psychologist, the answer is flat out, yes, absolutely, you should. There is no reason not to have somebody help you unpack the boxes that aren't packed in the right way in your head. Um, the way that I try and explain it mostly to South African men who do not understand the concept of mental assistance is if your favorite sports team has coaches for running, for passing, for eating, for drinking, for everything, and including mental health, why would you as a human also not need a mental health coach? That's what this is. A psychologist is a mental health coach. So my psychologists helped me unpack so many of the things that I was holding on that defined me and held me back from feeling like a success. And most of the time, it was just what other people thought. The, the number one problem I have is, if I do this, what will so-and-so think? If this happens, what will the world believe? If my business fails, what will my LinkedIn update say? And what will people think? And let me tell you, I've done that. I My last... 
business in COVID. I, I launched two businesses in COVID um, and a nonprofit company. And the only one that succeeded was a nonprofit. And in COVID, launched it, tried publicly, tweeted about the whole thing. It was it called Build in Public. So I was building in public buying the domain, building the website, telling people what I was doing. I had a course where I was helping people and the business didn't work. And I thought, huh, let's experiment. Let's tell people that it failed. And I swear, I thought that people would berate me and everybody said, well done, good try and moved on. The next day, nobody remembered or thought about it. So the idea of success that I'm trying to help people around me see is that if you're looking at somebody else and wanting their life, you have to remember that if you want their life, you have to take it all not just the good things. You have to take the bad things too. And that applies to the billionaires. Imagine being 20-year-old Billie Eilish, who's got all the money in the world, but can't go to a mall or a restaurant, can't walk out in a park, can't see anybody without a guard around her. That's not the life that I want. So you have to weigh up the pros and cons of your definition of success. It requires reflection. And I think so often people don't make the time in their lives uh, to actually do any reflection. So they're so busy trying to billions that they actually don't stop and say, wow, does, is this taking me where I want to go? Is this working for me? Um, so I think uh, what you say is, is all about really making time for reflection and, and introspection, um, yeah. however you do that. Yeah, yeah the so, self-awareness, uh, I think as a word, self-awareness is, I think, undervalued and underappreciated. A lot of people just go day to day trying to get through and fill their time with social media and TikToks and Instagrams and TV and just not to have that self-understanding, the self-awareness to go, I'm tired, I'm sick, I'm unhappy. Like you, those are you choose to ignore those things. You choose to live an unhappy life and go through day to day without having the self awareness to go. I'm sick, or I'm scared, or I need help, or I must be vulnerable. All these things that we shy away from, very much in South African culture, not not very much everywhere else. There are pockets of it, but South Africans are very guarded, and we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to talk about things like struggle and strife and depression and all these things that we should be talking about to overcome them. We think we're unique in, in our suffering, but we're not. I think also the brain is programmed to um, keep us alive and to protect us. And, and part of that is helping us to avoid the things that are uncomfortable and that we fear. So, for example, if you don't like feeling unhappy or depressed or whatever, then your brain just helps you avoid it. So you keep busy so you don't acknowledge that you're feeling depressed or sad or whatever. And... and yeah, you, you, you're unaware of what's yeah. really wrong for you, your state of being. Is... I'm glad you bring that up in that way because you've helped me tie in why I build a worldview in my nickisms. So I learned about the dichotomy of control and then post-traumatic growth. And I thought, okay, that feeling that you feel in the pit of your stomach when something feels unhappy or uncomfortable, like you want to avoid it. I've trained my body to understand that if I overcome that feeling, I will be a better version of myself. If I face that trauma head on and deal with the vulnerability, the uncomfortability, the failure, the dissatisfaction, I learn what I need to learn from it and then evolve. It's uh, We've taught our brains that avoiding the uncomfortable things makes us better. 
it's not what our brains are doing. It's what we've taught our brains to believe. We, we don't want the uncomfortable thing. I want to flick through TikTok rather than face the uncomfortable feeling because the TikTok is escapism. The uncomfortable feeling is real. So all I've done is use my worldview as a reference point so I don't have to remake those decisions. Ooh, uncomfortable feeling. Okay, go through mechanisms. It's this one. This is the thing that's making you uncomfortable. Then because failure is a good thing, approach it, feel the trauma of failure, and then become a better version of yourself. And often going back to our earlier point about why I change and do a lot of things, it's because I realize, oh, I failed at this. It's made me a better version of myself. I can do something different, better now. So mm -hmm. I would say that if you're listening to this and you think that you, your brain is trying to get you to avoid hard things, no, you've learned that avoiding hard things is easier than doing the hard thing. Yeah, but I, I, I think um, we're also under-equipped to deal with emotions, uncomfortable emotions, we we, we know taught us, and it's you know it's not part of the school um, training. It's not part of what we taught in uh, in our homes, and so we grow up not knowing what to do with an uncomfortable emotion, and not actually knowing that it is a wave, and it will get stronger, 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 and just when you think you can't handle it anymore, then it'll uh, come down and. And I think if people were more confident in their ability to deal with negative emotions, they would engage with them and, and yep. they would flow through them. Um, or at the worst case, more comfortable to ask for help when they feel an emotion they can't deal with. But yeah. we're not equipped to be vulnerable and ask for help if you're not doing okay. So yeah. like they, through COVID, there were people saying it's okay to not be okay. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely correct. It's okay to have a bad day. You don't have to be happy all the time. You don't have to know where you're going all the time. You don't have to have a clue all the time. In fact, I would argue that um, most people live at what I call the forefront of incompetence. So every single day, you're right at the edge of not knowing what the hell you're doing. And it's ignoring that feeling that makes us have stomach ulcers and panic and stress because we think we're the only ones out there going through this. And then that ties into my other favorite topic, which is imposter syndrome. We believe that we are the ones that are, we don't belong where we are. That if someone scratches just below the surface, they're going to figure out that we're a fraud and that we're the only people feeling that way. And that's fundamentally not true. Everybody feels like they don't belong where they are in spite of external validation. Everybody feels like they are the dumb one in the room. And if you acknowledge that feeling and you act like the dumb one in the room, you probably aren't the dumb one in the room. Nick, what I'd love to ask you next is, is regrets. Do you have regrets? And if so, what do you do with them? And what are your thoughts about regrets? Um, yeah, I think I think it's uh, not natural to avoid regrets and not have them. I just don't obsess about them, I suppose. Um, most of my regrets have to do with bad business decisions that I've made or partnerships that I've been in. Um, but to be honest, most of the the way that I deal with regret is I understand the context in which it lives. I understand the outcomes of the regrets and the cause of the the decision that led to the regrets. So. Um, it's very analytical how I deal with the regrets. It's not like um, my dad was an exceptional roller in high school. He was offered a scholarship at a top university in the UK, and his parents refused for him to go. He never lived that down. 
he was never able to overcome that one pivotal point in his life. And it stuck with him and tarnished his life forever. He wants to move to Durban and has told me that for 15 years and has never managed to do it and regrets never doing it. So I've got a very good benchmark in my life of someone who has wanted things, never done them and regretted them for his whole life. So I took the very early decision to maybe make bad decisions, but to understand why they didn't work out for me or why I didn't want them to happen or whatever. So anal analyzing the regret is a very key part, but then reverting back to that dichotomy of control, right? I can allocate my energy to something I can control, which is the life I'm living right now, or I can allocate my energy to something I can't control, which is a decision I made 15 years ago that I regret making that led me to where I am today. Then regrets often take shape because you're unhappy with the life you have today that you can look back at that point and go, this is why I'm unhappy today. That doesn't fit in with my worldview because today I get to make the choice to be happy, regardless of what happened five years ago, 10 years ago, or yesterday. I cannot control the outcome of yesterday's decision. I physically can't do it. We can't go back in time. So then my logic brain kicks in and goes, okay, well, what can you control? Well, I can control the choices I make today because those are the ones that matter. As a nihilist, if everything exists only today, then today's choices are the ones I should control. I shouldn't worry about what's coming in the future because I can't manage that. And I shouldn't worry about what happened yesterday. That's a regret that will never change. It will never change. So it's, for me, a form of insanity to have regrets that change the life you're living today. I love that. So I don't call myself a nihilist, but I call myself a mindfulness practitioner. And uh, we do exactly that. It's, it's all about this moment and, and trying to constantly bring the mind back yeah. when it wants to venture back to the past or venture to the future, just constantly taking charge of it and bringing it back, even if you have to do it a billion, trillion, zillion, million times, which you will, um, yeah. just keeping on doing that. So decisions. Yeah. Decisions are, are really hard things. And, and, and many people, I think, avoid decisions in their lives and uh, and find decisions extremely difficult. And I think they have very little confidence in their ability to make decisions. You, it's pretty easy. Can you help us with that, those of us that struggle? Yes. Um, I, I'm a proponent of any decision is better than no decision. Any decision. I genuinely believe that. If you are struggling with which car to buy, just walk into the dealership, find one in your budget, and choose it. It's just a car. If you don't like it, sure, you might lose some money. You shouldn't have bought a new car. You buy a second-hand car, you might lose 5% or 10% on your investment if you sell it the next week, but you also do get to choose to sell that car. There are very few decisions that you make in your life that you can't change later. You can't make a different decision. You choose to move to Cape Town. You don't like it, move back. You choose to get a job. You don't like it, leave. It's our will unwillingness to be um, movable that makes decisions hard. Uh, my partner and I have structured our lives in such a way that making decisions is easier. And nothing we've done has been, um, none of the big decisions we've made have been unintentional. We've chosen not to have children. That means that we get to move country often. And if we don't like the country or the house, we get to move again because we don't have to worry about schools. We don't have to worry about our kids' mental well-being because we don't have kids. We've chosen not to buy property, which means we don't have the stress of a mortgage, which means financially I have different decisions to make. 
we've chosen all these things that set us up to make the decisions in our lives easier. And again, going back to the nickisms, uh, to be efficient with my decision-making, there are some things that I don't have to make decisions on. Those decisions were made 5, 10, 15 years ago, and now they're part of my lexicon and part of my worldview. And if things change, then I change that perspective. Um, for example, one of my business partners and one of my businesses sold the business behind my back. I literally got to work one day and he had sold the company to our competitor without my knowledge and forced me to exit. It was a successful exit and it was fine, but the nickism out of that that I established was trust people until you have a reason not to. So my default, most people say trust is earned. I don't believe that. I believe the trust is given until you break it and then it's dead. So that's a decision I've made. When I meet you for the first time, I trust you until you do something that tells me otherwise. So I don't have to keep making that decision. I can allocate that energy and attention to other decisions today. And I try and systematize these decisions as much as possible and also go, well, I made that decision. It's not the end of the world. Let's move on. But that is not with everything. You can't accidentally have a child and then go, I don't really want that kid anymore. You can, obviously, but that's a bad decision. That's on you. But I think there's something around uh, your agility and your ability to to move forward um, that makes your decision making easier. And I think holding your life and yourself lightly makes it easier too, from what I've heard you say. Um, yeah, and also stuff, you know, like you physical stuff that also makes decisions less complicated. Like if you, and again, it's the circle of decision-making. If you, my partner is very minimalistic in her approach to the world and we are very environmentally friendly. So we try and buy used things, not new things. And that then alleviates a lot of the pressure. If you constantly aren't wanting to buy new stuff, then you're thinking, okay, well, what else can I do today? Now that opens up a whole world of other things. If you don't want to buy a property, it alleviates the decision of having to renovate a property. So all the decisions you make, the more decisions you make quickly, the easier it is to make quick decisions. It's mm -hmm. when you're stuck on this path that you feel like there's immovable. You are an accountant and you've got two and a half kids and two and a half cars and the white picket fence and the house and the mortgage. And you wake up one day and you think, I didn't make any of these decisions. They all just happened to me. And then you think that making the next decision is impossible. If you make lots of decisions all the time, regardless of whether they're big or small, right or wrong, you get used to the idea that the decision you make isn't really that fundamental. It can be changed later. So it's like start today and you realize that tomorrow will be easier or don't start today and the next decision will be impossible. I think a lot of people make their decisions around scarcity, around mm -hmm. avoiding scarcity, around... Yeah you know, trying to manifest plenty. <clears throat> so can you share with us your view on money as a resource or a support or an energy or whatever it is for you? Yeah, um, I've definitely had a difficult and complex relationship with money. Um, my, my father is the person who informed my early relationship with money and, and he didn't have a good one. Um, and that is definitely a generational thing. Um, it's very hand to mouth um, in terms of make tons of money and buy a car. Don't have tons of money, sell the car. And that really made me feel like money was a scarce resource. Um, and I've had to unlearn and relearn the concept of abundance and money. And the more you concern yourself with stuff and with 
the amount of money you have. And with all these complicated things, the less likely it is that you will overcome the concept of money being a scarce resource. Um, so really simply, the way that I've chosen to live, thankfully, thanks to my partner, she's helped me understand this, is there really are two ways to be financially stable in the world. It's really, really simple. Make more money or spend less money. That's it. It isn't more complicated than that. And the part that people don't like when I say that is spend less money is easy to do. It is genuinely easy to do. Go out less, spend less on alcohol, drive a less expensive car, live in a smaller house, and then the stress of earning more money disappears. And once you earn enough money, you understand that money is just something that enables you to do the things you like to do. It is not the be all and end all. It is not the counter of a good life. It is the thing that facilitates your ability to do the things you love. And if you don't see it that way, it will always be the thing that holds you down. Because I know people who genuinely, I know I've got friends who are worth 300, 400 million dollars who hate their lives, who are unhappy because that's the counter. And I know people who are alone and live amazing lives, but all they want is a partner. So the way that we understand what money brings to our lives is the pivotal point here, is you have to put it in context with your understanding and where you learned about money and how you interpret it and what it means for your life. And for me, for a long time, it was my benchmark of what success meant. And now it just isn't. I want sufficient amounts of money that I can do the things I like to do and live the kind of life I want to live. And that's it. Like I have no intention of retiring. I have no intention of not um, doing cool things. So why do I need to accrue as much money as physically possible? I don't know. I think uh, there's something around this word enough and mm. uh, it's difficult to know when it's enough when it comes to money because our egos and brains uh, by definition uh, it's never enough uh, unsatiable insatiable it's being very deliberate which is what i'm hearing you say around defining enough and defining what you need money for and and not uh, putting money on a pedestal and saying this is what i'm chasing my whole life yeah. and that makes such to your mental and physical health and your well-being yeah. so absolutely There's i don't know if to mention here like Please. um uh, i don't want to speak out of turn uh, with my brother but my, my brother struggles with the comparison syndrome that his version of enough is whatever somebody else has do i have enough in relation to someone else it's a relative feeling of enough um, and this goes back to our conversation about defining success. If your definition of success is learned from your friends who are all 100 millionaires, you will never be happy. You will never have enough until you have more than them. But if you stop and take a second to understand what you want out of life, what is your worldview? What do you want to achieve? And I mean, literally, the, the, the actual nuance. Um, for example, I have not a bucket list, but a list of things I want to um, experience. One of them is snowboard on every continent and uh, scuba dive off every continent. That isn't about being a billionaire. You can do that by saving for three years and then going snowboarding and saving for three years and going snowboarding. That's a completely viable thing. But what I know is that that's what I want. I have defined the thing that I want to achieve. I want to travel at least two times a year. To do that, living in Europe is easier. So now I live in Europe. That was a decision and a choice that was facilitated by thought and planning 
not by a ton of money. Money is often the thing that we mistake as the solution to our problems when actually first look at why it's a problem, how are you defining that problem, and then what else can solve that problem? I love that word, um, comparison syndrome. I think uh, that's a huge uh, de deterrent from well-being for so many people. Yep. So, Nick, I could sit and talk to you for the next five days, but uh, I don't know if you see yourself as a well-being expert, but I certainly see you as having huge expertise in that domain. And so um, I'm really, really glad we had this conversation. And I'm hoping that in a few months' time, or a year or so's time, maybe we can have another one and download some more of your up uh, ideas and updates um, on these ideas. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your agility and your um, worldview and your nickisms with us. Um, I'm sure there are many that we haven't heard of yet, but we'll get to those next time. I really, really appreciate your time and thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. Um, if people want to know what my nickisms are, I actually have published some of them on my website. You can just go to nickharalambus.com and find them all there. Oh, yeah, because that was my next uh, question is how can people get hold of you? And can you just share with us the names of all your books? Because I'm sure they're going to be people who want to read them and where, where people buy them from. Yes. So the easy URL to visit is nharry, N-H-A-R-R-Y.com. Um, and if you go there, you can see everything. My podcast called It's Not Over, where I interview business owners about their near-death business moments and how they overcame them. You can find my books, which the, the first one is called Do, Fail, Learn, Repeat, about my 10 years of back-to-back -back failures. The second one is called How to Start a Side Hustle, which I wrote in COVID to help people start small businesses. Uh, that particular book, I also started a nonprofit company alongside of and distributed nearly a million rand to 300 people over the period of a year um, to start their own businesses. And then the final one was called the Business Builders Toolkit, where I help business owners um, with lessons I've learned over the last 20 years and how they can use my toolkit to make their lives a bit easier. Thank you so much. And I'm sure people are going to want to get hold of those books. Uh, I certainly recommend your book. I only read one of yours, but I'm going to go and buy the other ones. Uh, but thank you so much, Thanks, Nick, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Route to Wellbeing. I hope that this episode has been really useful and helpful for you. Thank you to the team who brought it into being and to our special guests who so generously gave of their time and their insight. Please remember to share it with all in your network who you think it can help. Sharing help that really helps is what makes the world go round.